Here's where we're at, okay? We're talking about the life of Christ. Those of you who had just joined us this morning because you had no other class to go to, so you volunteered to come here this morning, thank you. The rest of you who have been with me, we've been doing this for a little over two years now, doing the life of Christ. I still have about 11 months to go because he had a three-year ministry, okay? So we're still covering it. We are at Matthew chapter 21. At that time that's going on, do you think there was a strong, when Christ came, was there a strong messianic expectation? Were people looking for a Messiah? Hmm. Yeah, they were, that's somewhat true, okay? That they were expecting and anticipating that the Messiah was going to come soon. Now, the reason you and I have to stop and say, why would people be expecting Messiah is because if you go back in the Old Testament, let's pretend we're Jewish people this morning, and we go to our synagogue on a regular basis, we're going to hear sermons, readings that are from the Old Testament. Some of them are going to come from the covenant promises that we know that we are God's chosen people because he made covenants with us. He made an Abrahamic covenant, many Davidic covenant. He had had a covenant with, uh, with uh, Moses at the law. And so these promises predict that there's going to be a Messiah coming. As well, we read in Psalms, which you and I would have, we would have that in our synagogue, uh, we would hear from the Psalms regularly. They're talking about this future king, the son of David who is coming. And so there's multiple specific preaching that is being done by some of the very, very popular prophets that talk about a child of David, that talk about that son being born. And so we're looking for that. Then we have these prophecies. We have prophecies from the book of Daniel that we have read about this prophet Daniel that he had talked about there's these world empires that are our enemies. We don't like them. We would, you know, spit when their name was said. The Babylonians, Medo-Persians, Greeks, and now the Romans, we wouldn't want anything to do with them. But remember from the prophecies, what happens after these four major kingdoms come to the earth? There is something that comes from heaven. You see it pictured. There's this fiery stone. What does Daniel say that fiery stone is? Do you remember? It's going to come, crush the statue, and then grow into a mountain. That represents what? It re yeah, the coming of the Messiah who builds his kingdom on the, you know, on the rubble of everything that is left. And so we have the prediction. We go a little bit further in the book of Daniel. It talks about the four different beasts. And then it talks that after that, the Messiah is going to set up his kingdom. So we're getting very specific details about this Messiah coming. We can read in Ezekiel. We read about shortly before the Messiah coming comes, Israel is going to be invaded by Gentiles. And those Gentiles are going to give us a lot of problems. In fact, in that passage of Ezekiel 38, it describes some of the details and the experiences of the people we, the people of Israel, would be having right before Messiah comes. Question, look at these prophecies. If you were living right around, let's say you're living right around 4 BC, could you interpret some of this as applying to you right now? You're in the land of Israel. You've been brought back in the last couple hundred years. You've come back from many different nations. Do you have a lot of walled cities or is there peace in the land right now? There's peace in the land. It's brought by the Romans. You have Roman domination. You are dwelling without walls. You're, you're having some of the region redeveloped. Remember, just in the last few hundred years, your land had been totally decimated and nobody lived there. Now you've been allowed to come back. And the wilderness areas that nobody was allowed to live in, they're starting to build cities. And it's starting to become, uh, you and I would say, it's still very, very, very pioneerish. But they're thinking we are really expanding and going. So you can see why some of the people at the time of Christ would say these prophecies, being, they're happening right now. Let me rephrase this, okay? We were insistent when I first got saved in the 70s that he had to come back because all the signs 
pointed to, he's got to come back any day now. We will never see the 80s. We lived through the 80s, okay? And then we would never see the 90s. And remember the predictions? Surely we will never see the turn of the century. Yeah, remember? And everything, everything in the world is going to blow up on January 1st, okay? Do you remember that? Remember all that? Okay. We were convinced because all the signs pointed that way. Okay, do people throughout history, can they sometimes misinterpret the signs and say he's got to be coming now? Okay, that happens. They didn't understand. So they were waiting for the Messiah. How do we know that? Well, you got people like Simon or Simeon and Anna. They're walking around. They're preaching that he's coming very soon. You got the wise men coming from afar. They're talking about reception of John the Baptist. He's talking about the kingdom. He's saying that he's coming at any moment. Where there was in the book of Acts talks about many different messianic pretenders. People were scamming the folk at this time. They were tired of the Gentile domination. Their nervousness of, of the Jewish leaders. I mean, there's some of these Jewish leaders, Romans and Jews, they're feeling a little bit nervous. I mean, Herod felt a lot nervous that he wanted to kill off this predicted king. And so you have the reaction of the Jewish people even when Jesus did his ministry. They wanted to make him king. Why? Because they're expecting this. They're expecting a king to be arriving. They're looking for it. They're, by their calendar and their interpretations of prophecy, the Messiah has got to be coming at any moment. So what exactly were they looking for? If you were sitting in those synagogues schools and you were reading verses like this and they were talking about when Messiah comes he's going to do this what would you look for what type of a person would you look for a mild mannered meek individual born in a manger or would you look for a dominating personality that would take over the headlines and rule. Watch these passages, okay? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. Then shall he speak unto them in wrath and speak sore displeasure. Would you expect your Messiah to be a warrior? To come. Okay, watch some other passages. Behold, the days have come, I saith the Lord. I will raise up David, a righteous branch. A king shall reign and prosper, execute judgment and justice in the earth. Based on that, what would he do with the crooks and the tax collectors? What would you expect Messiah to do in executing judgment and justice in the earth? What would he do with these people who are ripping us off? Yeah, they'd, they'd be, you know, he would definitely get rid of those people. Here we go, another one. The king's son, he shall judge the people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people, little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the earth, save the children of the needy. And he goes on and talks about break the priests, the oppressors. We have another one. He shall be king over all the earth. We have another passage that talks about with the righteous, he will judge the poor, reprove, smite, and he's going to slay the wicked. Another passage. This, by the way, do you remember who spoke this? It's in Luke chapter 3 about he's going he's gonna, to um, you know, judge and there's going to be unquestionable fire. Who do you think was speaking this about that time? John the Baptist, yeah, John the Baptist. So you're looking and saying, what kind of Messiah would I be looking for if I'm reading those prophecies? I'd look for a warrior. I would look for somebody who's a worldwide, I'd look for somebody who's executing judgment and taking out the wicked. In particular, get rid of these, these crooked leaders like Herod. Get rid of these tax collectors. Get rid of all this oppression that's taking place by the Sanhedrin who are abusing the poor people and the widows and establishing justice. I would look for somebody Somebody who is obviously a son of David. Jerusalem's going to be his capital. So it's no surprise that these people were looking for somebody to practically help them out of what they interpreted as being this individual who would come and reestablish us politically, economically, militarily as the superior nation of all nations. Did Jesus come and present himself that way? 
Wait a minute. Now watch. Jesus comes, okay, and when he does, he makes some of these people very nervous. You got paranoid Herod. You got great crowds following him. They're looking and saying, if he's the one, let's check him out. Peter says to him, you will not go to Jerusalem. And he's not denying the fact he could go to Jerusalem. He's saying, you can't suffer. You can't die. Why? Messiah is not supposed to die. So you have others that when Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Right after he says that, two of them come, by the way, when you set up your kingdom, can you make us? You would sit on your right hand, left hand. What I'm saying is this. His own disciples weren't looking for somebody who would suffer and die and who was meek and mild. They were looking for somebody who was mighty, powerful, do the miracles, be able to get rid of all this injustice that was taking place. And here's Jesus. The Jesus that we worship, what does he do? He ministers to the Romans. Do you remember how he did that at times? Did he ever heal Romans? Did he take care of the centurion's servant? Okay, how would most of the Jews look at somebody being pro-Roman? Okay, they would have a problem with that. Did he forgive the sinners that he was supposed to judge? Yeah, in fact, what did they accuse him of? Being a friend of sinners, sitting and dining with them. Then he takes into his 12, he takes people who are tax collectors. For real, would you sit next to somebody who works for the IRS? Okay. And Jesus is doing that. Do you understand some of the confusion that these people were having? He's ministering to the Gentiles. He is demanding that his followers show mercy. By the way, remember this. In Roman culture, and it was spreading throughout that area, mercy, showing mercy is a sign of weakness, okay? And so here Jesus is. He's not opposing Herod, the Romans, the way they think he should. And he's talking about dying, He's talking about suffering. And so some of the people, they wanted and they were thrilled when he did what? When they, they saw him do certain things, they had high hopes. They asked for it all the time. Show us signs and miracles. But then all of a sudden his speaking, <sighs> okay, do we ever have in modern day politicians that give us hope and then they open their mouths? Okay, does that ever happen? Okay, so they, 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 you know, can you imagine from people's sentiment why some of the people were confused about Jesus? They just, they didn't expect it. So come when Jesus comes that week, that final week that he's living, this is a really traumatic week. This is a busy week. We call it the Passion Week. There is a lot of ups and downs even for the crowds. Remember the highlight of that week for the upbeat of the crowds? They are saying and calling out What? Hosanna, son of David, save us. They're looking messianic. By the end of the week, what are people cheering? Crucify him. Okay, because he's not living up to their expectations. And so the time that we are talking about in our study at this point, we're in the middle of that Passion Week. We're at the time where there is a lot of, Jesus is doing a lot of presentation. In fact, if, he's, if we want to use the terms, and I, I use tongue-in-cheek, but if we want to use terms, this is campaign week. This is the day before, so to speak, that Tuesday is the day before election taking place, where it's the all-out drive to try to get the final thoughts here. And Jesus is going to have a lot of discussion with a lot of people. In fact, let's set up the week, okay? We are in our course of study, for those of you who had been with us, and then you bailed out because you wanted to get to another class rather than three years in the life of Christ, and you were wise. Um, the Others know that we are in that last week of time. Right before that final week, there's a two or three week period. We don't know 
know a whole lot about. We know Jesus went up into Galilee, and when he went up to Galilee, he joins a number of pilgrims. They travel down the eastern side of the Jordan River, headed for Jerusalem because it's the annual Passover feast. As he is traveling down, he is going to perform a lot of different miracles. He's going to do a lot of different uh, public things that you read about in the Gospels that take place during this time. The lepers, the rich young ruler, the uh, instance at Jericho with Zacchaeus. And so he's going to eventually arrive at Jerusalem. It is Friday night, Friday late afternoon. He and this band of pilgrims are coming over the rise that looks down upon Israel, uh, upon Jerusalem. And so there's a, cur there's a fork in the road. He can go this way or he can go to Jerusalem. The majority of the people in the band are going to go to Jerusalem. They got to get there before sundown because what happens on Friday at sundown? Sabbath starts, okay? So you got to get, you got to get a place, and you got to get a place to stay, okay? So Jerusalem being coming, it's, it's Passover week. They have a lot of folk coming in. They, they, uh, their population would grow exponentially from the typical couple hundred thousand to nearly a million, million and a half people. And so they have a lot of lodging being prepared. So the majority of these pilgrims that Jesus has been traveling with, they're going to head towards Jerusalem. Jesus veers off. He goes to the right to a small little village that's called Bethany. Some of his friends live there. Remember who they are? Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Okay, and he just was there a few weeks ago. And what did he do just a few weeks ago at Bethany? He raised Lazarus from the dead. Okay, so he goes to the place, and he's going to have, have his Sabbath meal sometime, someplace there. On the Saturday, there's another meal that takes place. This is the meal that is at Simon. Simon's home, it says Simon the leper, who is in this Bethany area. We don't know anything more about Simon the leper, but we can assume that if he was called Simon the leper, probably he's hosting a meal for Jesus because Jesus probably, probably healed him. And it's at that meal that Martha and Mary are helping to serve once again. And then when the meal is in process or winding down, then Mary comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus. You read about this in Mark chapter 14, as well as you have the other passages, John 12. Then what happens is the next day, that Sunday, Jesus heads for Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal uh, entry, we call Palm Sunday, and the crowds are cheering all the way from Bethany, all the way to Jerusalem. They get there, and when Jesus is riding that donkey, and there's a lot of details. Jesus is excited about what is happening or Jesus has another emotion. Do you remember what, it, what he does? He has another emotion. What's his emotion? He's weeping over Jerusalem because he understands they don't get it. And he knows that within just a few decades what's going to happen to Jerusalem. They're going to be totally destroyed. And so he gets there, and when he, when he gets off the donkey, he heads straight to the temple area. He goes to the temple area Sunday sometime now. We don't know the time. He gets there, and it says in the passage that he surveys the temple. And after he surveys what's going on in the temple, he leaves. He doesn't do anything. But he heads out of town, and he heads back towards Bethany, probably Mary and Martha's home. And then what he does is the next day he comes back to Jerusalem. When he comes back, he is uh, he, in route, he sees a plant that is by the roadside. Do you remember what the plant is? It's not a poinsettia. It's another plant. It's a fig tree. The fig tree is supposed to have, or looks like it's going to have fruit on it, figs on it, but it doesn't. It has leaves only. Uh, again, 
Okay, the reason it has that Jesus is upset, um, I shouldn't say upset, but the reason he curses it is because fig trees of that plant of that time, if they had leaves, they had some type of fruit on them already. The fruit preceded the, the leaves. This one looks fully mature, so he expected fully mature fruit. There's nothing there. It has appearance, but it doesn't have content, so he curses it. He continues the rest of the way to my, in, into the temple, and on Monday, he cleanses the temple. And that's the scene that so many of us are familiar with with where he chases all the money changers, everybody out of the temple. And then he guards, according to Mark, he guards the door of the temple for a period of time, doesn't let these money changers back in. So he basically has taken over the temple. In that course of that time, okay, he uh, does that throughout the day and he leaves. Okay, he comes back the next day. And on the way back the next day, so he went to Bethany, he's taking the same route. He comes Tuesday morning, they say, hey, this tree, yeah, you cursed yesterday. Look at it, it's dead. Surprise, surprise. And he gives them lessons from the fig tree about fruitfulness and not showing it on the outside and having nothing on the inside. And there's a whole account there. Whether it happened, and most think it happened maybe late Monday or very early Tuesday, the Gentiles, having seen what Jesus did, they want to have a conversation with him. They ask for an interview, so they go through a couple of his disciples and they have an interview. He teaches an extensive passage about him being the light of the world world and talks to them in, Mar in John chapter 12. Now this is interesting. He is in the temple region apparently in Jerusalem and he's speaking to Gentile proselytes. And so he's welcoming them, talking with them. We don't know a whole lot of details other than his sermon that takes place at that point. Now Tuesday what happens that we do know is that he arrives back at the temple sometime Tuesday and he is going to get involved with the temple. And he's going to do a lot of instruction. So we're dealing with Tuesday. At this time now, this is the third day in a row that he's come to the temple. He came on Sunday, Monday, and now Tuesday. And what's going to happen is they, they have this, um, this conversation that all three, when we say synoptics gospels, we're talking Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, The synoptics, all of them record conversations that are done during this day. In fact, there are several of them, there are six in number, that there are six controversies. What it is, is the leadership... Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the press asking questions to trip up a candidate? Can you imagine that happening? Okay, can you imagine the press in our day? Wouldn't this be amazing? They try to ask loaded questions. Can you, could you imagine in your wildest dreams having a presidential debate and the moderator asking loaded questions? Wouldn't that be just un unbelievable? So they do that with Jesus. They're asking as the moderators of the people, they're asking loaded questions, and they are loaded. These questions to you and I, we know the answers. So sometimes we read them, and it's like, oh, well, no big deal. In that day, it was a big deal. They're asking some really, really loaded questions, and their whole goal is not seeking information. Can you imagine somebody in the press trying to trip up a politician? Okay? They're asking Jesus questions with the purpose of trying to, you know, put a word in there. They're trying to diminish him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to turn the population. What happened two days earlier? What was the crowd sentiment two days ago? Really, really good. So what do we have to do? We have to give him bad publicity. How do we give him bad publicity? We're going to do this. We're going to ask him questions, and then we're going to tweet the answers out as quick as possible. And so there are loaded questions that they're asking him, and they're using hot topics. 
to them, hot topics. Hot topic doesn't seem like much to us, but this in Jewish culture was phenomenal. Matthew chapter 21. Here he is, he's coming, and they're going to ask him these questions. Matthew 21, verse 23. When he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching, and they asked, by what authority do you these things? Who gave you this authority? Again, you and I, that's not a big deal. Because we, in our culture, what gives us the right to speak? Freedom? Yeah, what, our constitution, right? Freedom of speech. Not in that culture. Not in that culture. You had to have, who gave you the right to speak? In Jewish thinking, in Jewish thinking, you had to, you had to authenticate. You had to figure, you had to present yourself with what gave you authority to speak. Okay, let's pretend to be dumb here this morning. Let's pretend we just opened the pulpit to anyone. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes, no? Okay, it'd be fun for those who want to speak. Could it be fun for those of us who have to listen? Okay, what would we want? Before we opened up the pulpit, what would, would we want to have some type of credentials? Would we want to have some type of, you know, what are you going to say, you know, what's going on here? Okay, the, um, the Quaker way of worshiping always kind of confuses me. That the Quakers would sit there and meditate historically. Sit there and meditate and wait for somebody to get up and to say something. Okay, in some churches, nobody would say anything. In other churches, everybody wants to get their two cents in. And not everybody's two cents is even worth it. Okay, correct? Okay, so we, what we do is sometimes, we even do this as a church. We say, okay, who has, what is the credentials for letting somebody speak? Okay, you expect me to do that before I invite people in, correct? I'm assuming you do. Okay, that I would at least find out, hey, what about this person? What about that person? We'll share with you in this morning about some churches that invited people in who scam churches. Have you ever heard that happening? Because they didn't check out. So the Jews were of that mentality that, hey, we need to know. And by the way, who's asking this question? Look at the question. Look at your Bible. This is very important. Who's asking the question? What's it say? The chief priests. What are they in charge of? The temple. Do they have the authority to evaluate, investigate who's speaking in this place? They do. They do. Let's give them that, that credit. They do. And so they're asking this, and they're saying, what gives you the right to speak to our people and, um, and do, and then they say, and to do these things. What do you think that these things that re, they could be referring to? Well, things that happened the last couple days. Do you think they're still bothered by the cleansing of the temple? Oh, they're not like you. If something happened at work last week, it doesn't bother you anymore. Okay, right? You get over it within minutes. Does it, do we work that? Is that human nature? Not at all. And so they're still bothered by it. And Jesus is going to respond to them. Now Jesus is going to use, and by the way, just, just to, uh, before I move on, if you read Jewish literature, if you read Jewish writings, what, and even sermons that they frequently would do, what do they do a lot of? They quote other authorities. Why? That's their mindset. Going back to some other authority gives me authority. We as Bible believers, we don't want the preachers to stand up there and necessarily quote other people. We want him to quote scriptures because we look and say the scriptures alone is our authority. Yes? Hello? 
Okay. Okay. So there's a different mindset, but they had it. Jesus does something that is really interesting. He does a, he does a rabbinic thing. It was very common that if in that culture, if you would go and ask your rabbi a question, he would answer with a question. Frequently, you ever see a fiddler on the roof? Yes. There's a couple scenes where they go and ask the rabbi some questions, and the rabbi doesn't answer, but with another question. Okay, that's very typical. So Jesus does that. They ask him the simple question as you look in Matthew chapter 21. And they say, who gives the authority? And Jesus responds. He says, well, I'll tell you who gave me authority, verse 24, um, that, that you know, in this whole matter, if you answer this question, the baptism of John, whence was it? Or who gave him authority, heaven or men? Okay, and he asks, he turns the tables on them, which is a really clever way of doing it. And the, the, the Jewish leaders, they reason within themselves. They don't answer right away. And, and Matthew reveals what they're thinking. So we get this little thought process that goes this way. They reason within themselves. If we say John came from heaven, he will say to us, why didn't you believe him? That makes sense. Okay, that's clearly, clearly makes sense. Then he goes on. Then they reason this. If we say of man, the people will be upset because the people think John was a what? He was a prophet. So the people have their opinion of John already. That John, and not only was he a prophet, right at this time in history, what is he also that adds to his story? He's martyred. Do martyrs often get bigger than life? Yeah, they do. Oh, okay, now, and I, I'm doing politics a lot this morning. Do presidents grow in stature if they've been assassinated? Yeah, that happens, right? All of a sudden, their whole, everything becomes, you know, we get canonized presidents who have lost their lives. Well, that's in their mind. They're doing that. And Luke adds this. You don't read it in Matthew. Luke says, the people will be upset and they will stone us. So they know the public sentiment is really, really, really strong for John. So if they would stone their leaders. And so that's something that's very important in this account, okay, that they know that. So Jesus turns the tables, he traps the Jewish leaders who are trying to trap him, and you and I standing on the sidelines would go, yay, for our hero, because he is so clever, and he is. The Jewish leaders, then, they say to him, we cannot tell. We're, we just can't give an answer. They plead the fifth in this one, according to verse 27, and Jesus says, okay, then I'm not going to answer you. If you don't answer my question, I'm not answering you, which is very legitimate. And so the, uh, the point is they, they are releasing Jesus from his giving an answer at this point. Now, Jesus goes on a little bit. But before we do that, let's pause, okay? Just think about what's just been revealed to you. The Jewish leaders are, more opera are, are operating more by poles than by principles. Can you imagine leaders doing that? That's amazing. That's amazing that leaders of groups of people would, would operate more by public opinion than by truth. They, um, they are individuals who are very concerned how things would play with the crowds, okay? And we've seen a lot of that. Jesus does, and this is really important. It's, it's, like, it's like I mentioned, some of you who weren't with us. Do you remember when Jesus is standing by Pilate? It's going to be later in this week. It's going to be on Thursday, just a couple days. Do you remember when Jesus is before Pilate? What does he do? Or Friday morning. What does he do when he's being asked some questions? Does he answer a whole lot or does he remain quiet a whole lot? Okay, that always bothers me. Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he say, I'm Messiah? 
And then it dawned on me as I was doing this study this, this time through. Um, I don't know about you, but some, for me, as I go over scriptures, like the book of Revelation is a great example. The more I study it, every time I get something strikes. Yes, no? I don't learn, I don't get it all in one reading. The gospels, I've done the life of Christ and stuff before, but it never dawned on me. And I've always walked away saying, why didn't he say more? Why did he be so quiet? If he had said more, he, he would have gotten more out of, less out of trouble, been more forthright, and you and I would be able to point to the passages. But didn't he say a lot this week already? On Sunday, he let the crowds acclaim, and when they said, tell the crowds to be quiet, what does he say? If I tell these people to be quiet, the stones will. He's, he's very clearly allowed it to be said, he is Messiah. That whole parade. Do you remember about a year before when they wanted to make him king? Shh, 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 shh. He stifled it all. Now, on that Palm Sunday, he's not stifling anything. He's letting it being broadcast. Then when he's having this conversation, isn't he, by implication, saying a lot? Isn't he inferencing he and John come with the same authority? Isn't that the implication? If you tell me where John got his authority, I'll tell you where I got my authority. It's the same place. If you can't tell, then I'm not going to tell because you are being too, too stubborn. You are spiritually hardened. You don't believe John came from God. You won't believe I came from God. Does that make sense? Okay, what he's doing? And so he's implying very clearly, showing his divine authority and the fact that he took control of the situation. And let me, let me point out, do remember this. The Pharisees have already said... Do you remember the Pharisee, Nicodemus, John chapter 3? No man can do the works you do except he from God. They already know. They just aren't accepting it. They already have it up here, but it hasn't transferred to here. And so Jesus is dealing with them. He went, went on to teach them. What is interesting, and now here is where you have to keep your context going. We have parables that Jesus speaks. This is one of those moments he takes the occasion and he speaks parables. In fact, let me show you the end of the parable that he speaks, that he talks about. We are in this Matthew 21. We are talking about verse 27. Jump all the way down to verse 45. In between are the parables. When the chief priests, we're in Matthew 21, 45, after he gives the parables, when the chief priests, the ones who were there asking him questions, and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he what? He told these stories on them. And what do they do? What's their response? Oh, this is cool. He just spoke a lot of nice things about us. No, according to the next verse, they took offense at what he said. So much so that, what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. They want to get rid of him. But, okay, they're hesitant. They're hesitant once again. So these parables that he speaks at this moment are directed towards the leadership. And they are going to point out some of the flaws in the leadership. Okay, and Jesus is going to be very, very pointed in these parables. They are phenomenal truths. Let's just see if we have a minute here to start with one. He tells the parable of the two sons. This one you already know. It's very familiar. He talks about a man has two boys. He says to the first son, he says, I want you to go out and work in the field. And he says, Dad, I'll gladly go and work in the field. But as time goes by, the son does or does not go and work in the field. Does not. 
okay? And then he says, but he had a second son. And he said, son, I want you to go work in the fields. I don't want to work in the fields. But as time goes by, the boy does or does not work in the fields? He does. So he was stubborn at first, but he yields. He is very willing, openly with his mouth, but he doesn't perform. Can you see any parallels to people that Jesus is dealing with? Where would you put the leadership? Boy number one or door number two? The one who talked... He had a lot of talk, but he had no walk. That's the Pharisees. That's the leadership. That they were on the outside, all kind of flatteries, but on the inside, nothing. Who, what group of people has Jesus worked with who they didn't follow at first, but they follow afterwards? There's a whole bunch of other people Jesus ministered to. Like who? The Gentiles? Who else? Samaritans? Who else within the Jewish community? Can you think of other people who they didn't, they're... The the sinners. The uh, harlots? Did he associate with harlots? Did he associate with tax collectors? Okay. So you got these people who Jesus is associating with, and he asks them a simple question. He says, which one of these two did the Father's will? Well, everybody knows the obvious answer, okay? It's the Jewish leaders say, um, actually, it should see the second one. The second one, everybody knows but Pastor Wayne. He obviously gets the wrong stuff. Say the second one who actually didn't go do the work. And Jesus makes the, very, the application very clear. And you and I can pull it all together real quickly that the, he's talking about the second son. He's talking about these are the people I'm ministering to. But you people are more like the professing ones. You're more like the ones who talk about it, but you have no walk. You don't follow. And it's the proof is, and this is how it ties to John the Baptist, Who listened to John the Baptist? Everybody heard him, but who listened to his message? It was the sinners. It was the Roman soldiers. It was the the people, the normal folk of the society. They responded to John's message, and they repented, because didn't John call for fruits of repentance? And so it's really, really, really clear. And Jesus is saying, okay, you people, you've got a problem here. And what he's done is he's tied himself to John the Baptist's message very clearly. He and John are of the same ilk. Very clearly he has revealed his divine authority by revealing truth time and time again. These guys are going to be without excuse. Whether veiled or whether stated, he is the Christ. He knows their spiritual lack of discernment. He knows that they aren't getting it and he uncovers it that they aren't getting it. And he reveals to them, once again, you guys really aren't the spiritual caliber that you think you are. And he makes it very clear that I am open to anybody and everybody, which should immediately say to you and me, thank God he's open to people like you and me. Thank God that he opened up the gospel to us. But he is not concerned more about what people profess outwardly. He isn't looking for verbal professions. He's looking for fruits actions, bearing it out, not just saying the platitudes in worship, but actually living it out. And so we go just a couple steps further. He made it clear that these people had opportunities, that he gave them the truth, and he waited, and he says after a while, okay, you have an opportunity to repent, to change your mind. These people did time and time again. And he's calling the Jewish leaders, basically, he's pointing out that you're a bunch of hypocrites. You talk, but you don't walk. And unlike them, 
It's an important thought. He is not going to be persuaded or influenced or moved by what's the crowd think. He's speaking the truth. Plainly, clearly, but with great grace and sentiment. And he gives them a message, a message that God is willing and open to accept anybody who repents. Including our friends, including us, including our relatives. That there is nobody beyond the grace of God. And thank God that is true today. 